We solemnly swear we're up to no good. Hi, I'm Gary Roby. I'm Victoria Laguna. And we're the hosts of Harry Potter Minute, the fan podcast where we overanalyze the Harry Potter movies one magical minute at a time. Join us as we argue about whether or not McGonagall would meow at Dumbledore. She wouldn't. As we ponder just how much Harry's fortune is worth. Just $40. As we guess how much mileage one gets out of an Ollivander wand. 100,000 jinxes. As we detail the ins and outs of Hogwarts Castle. It's only a model. Join us Monday through Friday, only from DuelingGenre.com. Mischief Managed. Dueling Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joseph Dorowski, and this week I am joined by Sarah Santana to discuss Harry Potter and friends from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Welcome, Sarah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on. Very excited to have you on, and I believe you said Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is one of your favorite books. Is that correct? It's Yeah, my favorite book of all time, so I'm very, very excited that this is the one that I get to uh, be a guest star on. So not one of your favorites, number one with a bullet. It is number one, absolutely. Okay, then. Well, listeners, if you're not familiar, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is the fourth book in the Harry Potter series and tells the story of Harry competing in the Triwizard Tournament, even as Voldemort is attempting to return to power. And it was, of course, written by J.K. Rowling. Sarah, do you remember when you first came to Harry Potter in general or Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire in particular? Uh, yeah, so I've been reading Harry Potter pretty much since the beginning. Um, I remember reading the first book when I was probably about 10 or 11. So probably about the year that it came to the actual US. So the Goblet of Fire was actually a book that I waited to come out for because that was the first one that we actually like waited um, for the release before they just kind of came to the United States. Um, but that one we actually waited for the release. And I remember being like, yeah, I think 12 when that came out. Um, and it was just a book that my dad bought for me. He took my brothers and sisters to the bookstore and he said, uh, if I come home without a book for Sarah, she's going to be really mad. So he grabbed something random off the shelf and, uh, it just ended up being Harry Potter. Oh, well, that was a good pick. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why I the first time I came home with the Harry Potter tattoo, he was so mad. And I was like, this is all your fault. You bought that first book for me. If you would have never bought it, this would have never been a problem. Um, I remember vividly waiting at the midnight release party for The Goblet of Fire. Um, because at that point, Harry Potter was a big enough phenomenon that stores were staying open to get the book into the, the patron's hands. At the yeah, for sure. Um, and that was the first one that did that in the United States. Um, and I remember being at a store that no is no longer with us. It was called Media Play. Uh, waiting, and the line was just snaking around. But I also remember that um, as soon as it was midnight, they, the workers started handing out books down the entire line, so that everyone was happy as they waited for the checkout counters to get, you know, to be able to get. Their oh, because they had already reading started reading. That's that's very smart. Because I didn't do the midnight for that one because my dad said I was too young to do that one. But I did all the other ones, and they did it like in groups. And so some people didn't get their books till I remember like one or two o'clock in the morning because they were like bringing people in and so people were like walking out with books and like you had to wait like another hour just to get like your hands on it it was like no like how did i get in like this group and not the first group so yeah that <laughs> yeah. sounds way better <laughs> yes and I, I do remember them having like wristbands and groups in later uh ones this is yeah. the first one i think we just they just had people line up starting whenever they got in the store to the back of a line right and, and just here just take your book read literally. it while you're waiting yeah. in line that's smart all right. Well, a uh, little bit of trivia about Harry Potter and uh, the Goblet of Fire. This is the first book that was published simultaneously in the United States and the United Kingdom. And it came out on July 8th, 2000. And it is twice as long as any previous Harry Potter book, which you may feel when we get to the summary. I tried to trim the subplots <laughs> where I could. <laughs> um, the working title for this book was Harry Potter and the Doomspell Tournament. And then J.K. Rowling changed the name to the Triwizard Tournament. And she said, up until almost like publication time, she was waffling between Harry Potter and the Triwizard Tournament or Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And I don't know about you, Sarah, but for me, Goblet of Fire isn't the best title for this book, actually. Like it kind of sticks Honestly, out in the series. Honestly, like, it really isn't. Um, I feel like it's kind of 
almost the worst title in the entire like series. I mean, it's it's catchy and stuff, but when you read the book, you're like, the Goblet of Fire is in there for 20 seconds, and then it's never used ever again. And I remember yes. hearing the rumors of the Triwizard Tournament one and being like, that sounds so cool. And then when it came out, I was like, oh, okay. I mean, that's cool too, but it's a very deceiving title. Yes, and almost all the other books, um, the title is like significant for the entire story. And with Goblet yeah. of Fire... Or, and, and like for a lot of them, it's like the mystery that drives the entire thing. So like Chamber of Secrets, what is the Chamber of yeah. Secrets? Or, you know, and you don't find out until the very half end. The Prince, the who Fire. is the half of Prince? Yeah. yeah. And a Goblet of Fire is act one. It's done. And then you really don't see it again. And so for right. me, I, I always thought it kind of stood out as like not the, the most successful of the titles. I always wondered yeah. maybe if that was something that like the publisher was like, but it sounds cooler, you know, and it's like, okay, but it literally is never mentioned ever again. So. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, it needed to come back as, like, like, it was the trophy at the end or something for a greater significance. Right. If it was, like, yeah, or it had something really cool to do with the third task, but it literally, like, <laughs> picks the winner or the champions and then never comes back. It's like, oh, okay, cool. This book almost introduced a character named Mafalda, which is a name she borrowed later. Um, but Mafalda in this book was going to be a Slytherin student who is the daughter of the Weasley's, quote, second cousin who's a stockbroker end quote, who was mentioned in an offhand way in the first book. Mafalda would have been a vehicle for a lot of the rumor mongering that Rita Skeeter does in the version of the book that we have, but Rowling found that limitations of having a first-year student spreading the stories outside of the school just didn't work. Like, the there were too many limitations there. So she scrapped Mafalda and wrote in Rita Skeeter. And I like the character of Rita Skeeter. Um, to me, that has always felt like um, JK Rowling was like working out her own issues with the press and the way the press likes to build people up and then trash them. There's always the cycle uh, that ends in the backlash. I mean, um, that's absolutely that book was kind of the first book where she was like really, really famous. And so mm -hmm. I think that's when everybody kind of took the opportunity to say both good and bad things about her. Yes, she'd, she'd personally experienced a lot of that cycle that Harry gets, you know, put through in this book. But I do kind of miss the idea of a Slytherin who was more sympathetic than any Slytherin that we get in the series. Absolutely. Like I said, they, it's very, you know, uh, the whole series is kind of always trying to be like, you know, um, not all the Slytherins are bad. But the, the examples we get of that is more that, I mean, they're not totally bad, but they're also not totally good. We don't really get a Slytherin that's like just a really good character that's like, you don't stop and go, yeah, but they also did this, you know? Um, yeah. It would be kind of cool to just have, like, I don't know, like a jokey, like, I just ended up in Slytherin. Like, I don't know how this happened, you know? Yeah. Um, or even just a Slytherin that we cared about. <laughs> as readers yeah. That we could form. I mean, Lisa, that wasn't, okay. like, wishy-washy. Like, I mean, they're kind of okay, but they also, like, totally teased this person for seven years. So they're not that yes. great either. Um, Goblet of Fire won the Hugo Award in 2001 for Best Fantasy Novel, which was the only Harry Potter book to win that award. And its first print run was over 5 million copies, which is a lot of books <laughs> to be printing. <laughs> um, and that first run has an error, which I remember this uh, like stood out to me when I read the book. And this error got corrected in every subsequent printing. In the original release at the end of the book, Voldemort's magic wand is forced to release ghostly echoes of spells that it has completed. And the order in which some of these ghosts, uh, particular, well, the Harry's parents, that the order that they come out of the wand is incorrect. Like it doesn't line up with the order that Voldemort would have killed them. And it was pointed out almost immediately by fans. And of so course. every subsequent edition had that corrected. So I guess... That first issue is an error print run, which is a collector's dream, but there were 5 million of them, so there's no scarcity. So there is no. Yeah, because I'm, I'm almost positive that mine has that, because I remember reading it and being like, wait a second, that's not yes. right. Yeah, like it so, just kind of. It's, not, it's, it's definitely not something that it's like, yeah, that you're going to get for like thousands of dollars. Yeah, you should be super excited if yours has the wrong order, because again, massive print run. Right. Um, to, yeah, like there's, there's no scarcity, so there's no value. <laughs> To promote the book, J.K. Rowling rode on a specially painted train that was made to look like the Hogwarts Express that traveled from King's Cross Station to Perth with 10 stops for book signings along the way. And that just sounds cool. I know, right? Because she doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. Like, I would have loved to have been there for that. That would have been awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think she's going to be doing that for... Uh, oh, for absolutely not. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, the book received positive reviews almost um, universally, though, if when people were like issuing any complaints, it tended to be that there was too much adolescent squabbling and that the villains monologued too much at the end that slowed everything down. And there is a lot of like explaining the plot. So that happens twice at the very end of the book. So I understand that. Um, yeah. 
but for the adolescent one like this this is the right year for a lot of adolescent squabbling so i don't mind that right they're, they're 14 years old like they should be doing that yeah and and oh so they're they're 14 years old and there's a plot point that just releases all the hormones in hogwarts at once so of course there's going to be squabbling that happens oh yeah absolutely <laughs> Um, the film adaptation was released in 2005 and there were several video game versions released at the same time. So there are video game adaptations, but they tend to line up more with the film than the book. Yeah. Any uh, other trivia that you're aware of, Sarah, that's worth mentioning? Uh, you know, one of my favorite things about this book, like I think it's one of those ones that either, you know, a lot of people know or they don't is um, there was a girl named Natalie who lived in Canada who had cancer and she had really bad cancer. And she wrote to um, Joe Rowling to ask her how the books ended um, because she didn't think she was going to make it in time for, you know, the rest of the books to come out. And unfortunately, she had died by the time, you know, Joe had gotten to the letter um, but she stayed in correspondence with the girl's mother and told the girl's mother how everything ended. And in Goblet of Fire during the sorting, um, that she sorts that little girl into Gryffindor. And it's just a like super quick moment, but it's just, I don't know, it's a really cool thing that she just, you know, did for the, like a fan. And like a lot of people don't know that one. And I really like that about the book. It's just that small little thing that she has in there. I did not know that one. And that is moving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. As I heard that uh, quite a few years afterwards. And I, was like, and I remember being like, I totally remember. I mean, it's just, a, you know, nothing, you know, just a regular name that just pops up and she gets sorted into Gryffindor. But uh, now every time I read it, I see it and it's, it's just kind of a cool thing. That is. All right. Well, before we get into the long summary, listeners, we want to thank you for joining us and for listening to this episode. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about newly released films, trailers, or TV shows, and also talk about any new books that we're reading. And we also give updates on our fantasy box office. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss and now i will do the long summary which i have <laughs> as many subplots as i can but it turns out with jk rowling all the subplots come back <laughs> and, absolutely <laughs> so i'm gonna do my best to make this quick i believe in you okay. Thank you. Harry wakes up from a dream about Voldemort and his scars hurting. He writes a letter to his godfather, a wizard named Sirius Black, who is in hiding because everyone thinks he's a murderer and supporter of Voldemort. And listeners, I would just invite you, if you're not familiar with these characters, to go and listen to our earlier Harry Potter episodes to catch up on who these people are. Um, Harry is invited to go to the Quidditch World Cup with the Weasleys. They use a port key, which is a magical object that transports anyone who touches it instantly, and they travel to the Quidditch World Cup, where Harry sees a young Quidditch star named Victor Crumb perform amazingly. While there, Harry meets a house elf named Winky, who is saving a seat for a Ministry of Magic official named Barty Crouch, but Crouch never shows up. After the World Cup, a group of former Death Eaters, who were Voldemort's supporters, they put on masks and they cause a riot, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione run into the woods while the adults go to take care of things, but Harry cannot find his magic wand. They hear a spell cast, and in the sky above them, a glowing skull with a snake crawling out of its mouth appears. Ministry of Magic officials show up instantly uh, to discover who cast the Dark Mark. This is a symbol of Voldemort's. Harry and his friends protest their innocence, and it's quickly believed because it's Harry. <laughs> like, he's not <laughs> casting the Dark Mark. Uh, but when they search the area, the Ministry finds Winky, the house elf that Harry had met earlier, and she's holding Harry's wand. Mr. Crouch says this is his house, house elf, and he will take care of her punishment at Hogwarts later that year. It is announced that there will be no Quidditch this, uh, this year, which bums out Harry because he's the seeker for the uh, Gryffindor team. Uh, but when it is announced that they've canceled Quidditch because Hogwarts is going to be hosting the Triwizard tournament, everyone is fine with this. The Triwizard tournament will involve three different wizarding schools, each having a single champion representing them in a series of three challenges. Also Dumbledore at this time introduces the new defense against the dark arts teacher who is mad. Eye moody who uh, was an RR who caught dark, dark wizards um, professionally. The representatives from the other schools will be arriving shortly, but in the meantime, the Hogwarts students begin to have their classes. Mad-Eye teaches them about the three unforgivable curses, which are Imperius, which is a mind control curse, Cruciatus, which is a torture curse, and Avada Kedavra, which is the killing curse. He teaches Harry how to throw off the Imperius curse, then the headmasters and a couple dozen students from the other two wizarding schools arrive. These other schools are Bobatons and Durmstrang. 
And Dumbledore explains that the champions from each school will be chosen by a magical object called the Goblet of Fire. Any student who wishes to be considered to become a school champion must submit their name into the Goblet of Fire, which will then, at the appointed time, spit out the names of three champions. And this is just the scraps of paper that are put into the fire get spat out uh, by the Goblet of Fire. And then <laughs> whosoever names come out, they are the champions. Dumbledore, um, to add some safety, because in the past, uh, champions have died, <laughs> Dumbledore is going to put an age line around the Goblet of Fire, which is going to prevent any students under the age of 17 from adding their names to the Goblet. Uh, Fred and George are just a few weeks shy of 17, and so they take a small aging potion to try and cross the line, but they get thrown back and they grow long white beards, and you hear that some other students have tried to sneak past it, and they've all failed. The day for the Goblet to select champions arrives, and the champions are Fleur Delacour from Bobotons, Victor Crumb from Durmstrang, and Cedric Diggory from Hogwarts. And then mysteriously, a fourth name is emitted from the Goblet, and it is Harry Potter. Dun, dun, dun. Harry has no idea <laughs> of course. how his name got into the Goblet. Yeah. When, when another <laughs> name comes out, I bet every reader is like, I wonder who it is. Obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> Harry has no idea how his name got into the goblet, uh, but he is now magically bound to participate. And I love this conceit that we're not going to explain how or why, but you must now participate. You and they no never choice. explain what happens if you like, don't like, if you're like, mm, yeah, like no, it, I'm okay. Like they never explain. They just are like, it's you cannot like not participate. And then he almost sleeps through one of the tasks and like, what would have happened? <laughs> right. Just like he just like, tasks, did, but... like what happened if you didn't, you just like, didn't show up. Like I just, I'm really curious about the like ramifications of this. <laughs> Yes. Um, many people, including Harry's best friend, Ron, think that Harry is just an attention seeker who found a way to trick the goblet. And much of the school calls Cedric the Diggory the real champion of Hogwarts, and they make fun of Harry. Um, Ron and Harry have a huge fight, and now they only talk through Hermione, who remains neutral. She is Switzerland in this <laughs> situation, and she remains a friend to each of them. A reporter named Rita Skeeter writes an article about the tournament, but it is more of a glowing profile of Harry Potter with made up bits that make him seem even more sympathetic than his real story. I mean, there's enough there in the real story that she did not have to. Right. She embellishes on a story that doesn't really need embellishing. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Uh, nobody knows what the first challenge is going to be, but shortly before the first task, Hagrid, who is the gamekeeper at Hogwarts, he asks Harry to come and meet him and he tells him to wear his invisibility invisibility cloak so harry goes and hagrid says just follow me and then hagrid flirtatiously takes the headmistress of bobotons who is madame maxine who is as giant as hagrid is to go and see four dragons that have been brought to hogwarts for the first challenge so now harry knows that he is going to have to do something facing a dragon for the first challenge but also the headmistress of bobotons knows so he assumes Flor delacour is going to know and as Harry is leaving, he trips over the headmaster of Durmstrang, who is sneaking around, Igor Karkaroff. And he realizes now that Victor Crumb is probably going to know. So Cedric is at quite the disadvantage as the only champion. He doesn't <laughs> know dragons are involved. And so Harry actually tells Cedric what he's learned. Not sure how he is supposed to get past the dragon. Harry tries to contact Sirius Black, but that doesn't go well. It gets cut off before he can get any advice on how to deal with dragons. Then during a heart-to-heart -heart with Mad-Eye Moody, Moody says... He's not supposed to take sides or help anyone with the tournament, but he knows Harry has a talent that could get him through the first task. And Harry says, I don't have any talent except maybe Quidditch. And Mad-Eye says, Harry, you have talent. Wink, wink. Maybe <laughs> you, with help of spell, you can use your talent to get through the first task. Wink. And Harry's like, I only fly. Oh, I only fly a broom. <laughs> okay. And so then he goes to get Hermione to teach him a summoning charm so that he can summon his broomstick to him. Uh, the day the first task arrives and the champions are told they have to steal a golden egg that has been added to the dragon's nests. Harry sits alone in a tent as he listens to Fleur, Crumb, and then Cedric each complete their task. Then Harry has his turn and he goes out and faces a dragon and he does his summoning charm to bring his broomstick to him and he flies marvelously and he's able to swoop down and steal the golden egg. And then he's given scores from the judges and he is tied for first place with Victor Crumb. And after the challenge, Ron comes and apologizes for fighting with Harry. He says that he now believes that anyone who put Harry's name in the goblet is trying to kill Harry. And the champions are told that the golden eggs they stole from the dragons have a clue about the next challenge. But Harry can't figure out the egg has a hinge. But whenever he opens it, he just hears a screeching sound. And he kind of forgets about it because the next challenge isn't for a couple months. 
Hermione, who was appalled to discover that Hogwarts has house elves, begins an organization called the Society for the Promotion of Elvis, Elvish Welfare, or SPEW, in which she is trying to get elves uh, to be paid for their work. Harry discovers that being a school champion involves a hidden task that no one warned him about. There will be a school <laughs> dance over Christmas break, and the champions are expected to open the dance with uh, their dates. They're supposed to lead their dates out and do the first dance um, representing their schools. And hormones begin ricocheting off the walls of Hogwarts <laughs> as everyone starts wondering who will ask whom to the dance. After waiting <laughs> too long, Harry asks Cho Chang, uh, only to find out that Cedric has already asked her to the dance. Now Cho must be amazing, amazing because two Hogwarts champions are going. Yeah, after right. Her. Not just one, but two of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um. Uh, now, at this point, up to this point, Harry had decided that Cedric wasn't actually that bad, but now he realizes that Cedric is a stupid git. Um, Ron also hasn't asked anyone to the dance. And then he has this um, brainstorm. He says, Hermione, you are a girl. Will you go to the dance with me? And Hermione is a bit miffed that he thinks one, that she would still be available. And two, that he didn't ask earlier if he wanted to take her. And she tells him that she has already been asked. And Ron doesn't believe that, uh, which does not help his relationship with Hermione at this point. (laughs) It really doesn't. Harry tries asking Ron's sister, Ginny, who has had a crush on Harry her whole life, but she's already been asked by Neville and said yes. Finally, Harry asks uh, Parvati Patil, and she agrees. And then Harry says, do you know anyone else who could go with Ron? And she says, well, my twin sister hasn't been asked. And so Ron goes with her twin sister. And now the Yule Ball arrives, and it goes very poorly for Harry and Ron. Not their finest hour. Um, They are both seething with jealousy over Cho and Hermione, respectively. Uh, And it turns out Hermione is there with Victor Crumb. So she's there with uh, one of the the Durmstrang champion. And Harry and Ron don't pay enough attention to their dates, who get miffed and storm off. And eventually, uh, they're ditched. And Harry and Ron are just wandering through the gardens, waiting for this terrible (laughs) Yule Ball to end. And they accidentally (laughs) overhear Hagrid asking Madame Maxine which side of her family has giant blood. And she's offended at the suggestion that she is part giant and storms off. And Hagrid's kind of like, well, I'm part giant. Why? (laughs) You you must be too. At the end of the night, um, Cedric finds Harry and thanks him for telling him about the dragons and then tells Harry, you need to take a bath with the egg. Wink. (laughs) And Harry thinks this is the dumbest hint imaginable. And he's like, I told you it was a dragon and you're telling me to go take a bath. Uh, When returning to the Gryffindor common room, Ron has a fight with Hermione saying that she is dating the enemy by going to the dance with Victor Crumb. Uh, Rita Skeeter publishes an article revealing that Hagrid is a half giant and Hagrid hides away from everyone for a while. It turns out giants have a vicious reputation, but Harry, Ron, Hermione and Dumbledore help to convince Hagrid that he is still wanted at Hogwarts with the second task looming. Harry realizes he needs to swallow his pride and follow up on Cedric's clue. He takes the egg to the bathroom, listens to it underwater and he hears it singing a song clearly that says he's going to have to go under the lake and reclaim something that he will miss from the bottom of the lake. The thing is, Harry can't breathe underwater, and he doesn't know how to. Um, so, he, and, and when he's sneaking back, he's looking at his Marauders map, which shows where everyone is in Hogwarts, and he sees Barty Crouch is sneaking around Snape's office, which makes no sense. But he has to really just focus on the task, and so he forgets about that mystery. Um, and the night before the task comes, he still doesn't know what he's supposed to do, so he goes to the library to research everything that he can find, and he falls asleep in the library, and he's, he gets woken up in the morning by Dobby, the house elf, who adores Harry Potter, and Dobby gives Harry a plant called Gillyweed, and tells him to get down to the lake, because the task is starting, and Gillyweed will make him be able to breathe underwater. So Harry runs, and the other three champions are waiting, and the task starts, and he eats the Gillyweed, and he grows gills, and he goes swimming down to the bottom of the lake, where the Mer people live, and they have a whole village, and in the town square, he sees Ron, Hermione, Cho, and a young girl who looks like Floor tied up and they're floating and they're unconscious. And Harry isn't sure what he's supposed to do. But he goes and he unties Ron and he looks around and he doesn't see any of the other champions. So he tries to untie Hermione, but a merman comes and stops him and says that he has what he needs and he needs to go back to the surface. But Harry waits. Eventually, Cedric and Crumb come and they take Cho and Hermione with them. But there's still no sign of Fleur, who Harry assumes is supposed to get this other girl. So Harry fights off the merman who tried to stop him and he cuts the girl free and he takes Ron and the girl to the surface. And it turns out the people at the bottom of the lake were never really in danger and Harry should have left after rescuing Ron. <laughs> But the judges award Harry point extra points for moral fiber, um, <clears throat> even though he came up last. The fact that he stayed, they show they say shows good moral fiber, so he gets extra points, and he is tied with Cedric Diggory for first place. 
So now Rita Skeeter publishes another article, this one saying that Hermione is playing with Crumb and Harry's feelings. And Sirius Black comes to Hogsmeade to meet with Harry and Ron, and he gives an info dump about how Barry Crouch used to fight against Voldemort, but discovered his son was a Death Eater, showed him no mercy, and his son was sent to Azkaban where he died. The champions, uh, now we come back to Hogwarts, and the champions are shown a hedge maze that is being grown for the final challenge. After they now know what it is, Crumb stops Harry, though to ask if there's anything romantic between Harry and Hermione, but Harry insists there's not. Just then, Mr. Crouch comes out of the woods and he's raving like a madman. Harry runs to get help, but when he gets back with Dumbledore, Crumb is stunned and Crouch is gone. Crouch had said stuff about it being his fault that the Dark Lord would rise again, which seems like a big deal, but no one else (laughs) seems very concerned about this. (laughs) Um, the next day, Harry falls asleep in divination, and he has a dream about Voldemort, and he wakes up with a scar hurting, which is always a sign that Voldemort is uh, feel it, feeling his oats at that moment. <laughs> so um, it is now time for the third task. And that day, Rita Skeeter publishes an article trashing Harry and his reputation, saying that he's kind of crazy and he's power mad. Um, everyone, including the champions' families, is there for the third task, and uh, the champions begin navigating the maze, trying to get to the center where the Triwizard t- Trophy is. Whoever to- touches the trophy first wins. Harry and Cedric get to go in first because they're in for- tied for first place. The maze has spells and creatures within it, and after many acts of daring do, Harry and Cedric reach the center simultaneously. Harry is wounded, so Cedric can just run up and grab it, but he says Harry should get it. They agree to touch the trophy simultaneously, and when they do, they are immediately pulled into a graveyard. The cup, it turns out, was a portkey, and a voice yells out to kill the spare, and Cedric is hit with the killing curse. And then Harry, wounded, is tied up to a gravestone. Peter Pettigrew, who we know from earlier books, again, you can listen to our earlier episodes if you don't know that name, uh, he performs a magical ritual which involves bones from the grave of Voldemort's father, Harry's blood, and Peter Pettigrew's own right hand being cut off into this cauldron. And then um, the kind of withered remains of Voldemort are dumped into the, uh, the, the cauldron and Voldemort rises reborn. He calls his followers and a dozen Death Eaters arrive. Voldemort says that with the help of a servant at Hogwarts, he has returned and he needs to prove to them that Harry's victory years ago was an accident. So he challenges Harry to a duel. Voldemort casts Avada Kedavra and Harry casts Expelliarmus and their spells collide and a bright light connects their wands. This is weird. (laughs) The beat of magic (laughs) travels down to Voldemort's wand. And by weird, I mean like everyone that's watching this is like, this is really weird. This is not how magic Yeah, it's not just weird for like muggles. It's weird for wizards too. Like they don't even know what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. And this, uh, at this point, Voldemort's wand begins regurgitating ghostly echoes of his spells, including a form of Cedric Diggory and Frank, an old man who was killed at the beginning of this book, and eventually Harry's mom and dad. And everyone, the Death Eaters, Voldemort, Harry, everyone's a bit freaked out. (laughs) And then the ghost of Cedric asks Harry to take his body home to his parents. And the ghosts say that they'll give Harry one minute. Harry lifts his wand, which severs the connection from Voldemort's wand. The ghosts converge on Voldemort as Harry grabs Cedric's body, the body of Cedric's, uh, you know, grabs his arm. And also the Triwizard Cup, which port keys them back to Hogwarts, where chaos breaks out when Harry shows up clinging to the dead body of Cedric Diggory. Mad-Eye Moody takes Harry up to the castle and makes Harry tell him what happened. And then Mad-Eye starts monologuing about he is the spy, how he is the spy in Hogwarts. Harry's very confused because Mad-Eye caught more Death Eaters than anyone. Um, And Dumbledore and Snape show up and they stupefy Mad-Eye, who slowly transforms into Barty Crouch Jr., who supposedly died in Azkaban years ago. Snape fetches a truth serum and we get uh, an info dump from Barty Crouch Jr. explaining Barty Crouch Jr. was a Death Eater and he went to Azkaban, but his mother broke down emotionally when that happened. And as a response to her dying wish, Barty Crouch Sr. took his wife to visit their son in Azkaban and his wife took Barty Jr.'s place in the cell. And the Dementors are blind and I imagine there was some uh, polyjuice potion at work here. Um, And so Barty Crouch Jr. leaves and his mom stays there and dies and everyone thinks Barty Crouch Jr. is now dead. And Barty Crouch Sr. takes his son and puts an imperious curse on him to keep him under control and puts him under an invisibility cloak at all times. But Winky the house elf is in charge of keeping an eye on him. And Barty Jr. started being able to break through the imperious curse his father put on him. And uh, eventually Winky convinced Barty Sr. to take Jr. to the Quidditch World Cup. And he doesn't know that Jr. is getting, uh, you know, more of his own will back. And while at the Quidditch World Cup, this is where we saw Winky sitting up in um, 
in the seats, saving the seat. She was really um, saving the seat for Barty Jr. who was sitting there in his invisibility cloak. And he stole Harry's wand. And he's the one who cast uh, the Dark Mark at the Quidditch World Cup. And after the World Cup, um, Peter Pettigrew and Voldemort go uh, find out that Barty Jr. is there because of a subplot. I've had a cut for time. They find out where Barty (laughs) Jr. is and they go and free him from his father's spell entirely. And then they take uh, they put Barty Sr. under a an Imperius curse, and they take Barty Jr. to Mad-Eye's house, where they uh, capture Mad-Eye, and he uses Polyjuice Potion to appear as Mad-Eye during the entire school year, and has been Barty Jr., not Mad-Eye Moody, who has been teaching the students. And Mad-Eye Moody, uh, well, the Barty Jr., Mad-Eye Moody, uh, put Harry's name into the Goblet of Fire and made sure that he would participate in the tournament and win the tournament so that he would touch the Triwizard Cup and be transported to Voldemort, where his blood would be used to revive the Dark Lord. Uh, And the Minister of Magic is there because of the Triwizard Tournament, and he brings some Dementors with him to go see Barty Crouch Jr. and see what's up. And immediately the Dementors suck his soul out of his body. Uh, before the minister even hears any of his confession. And now the minister refuses to believe the story that Marty Crouch Jr. had told, that Voldemort is back. And against the minister's wishes, though, Dumbledore announces to the students at Hogwarts that Voldemort killed Cedric Diggory and is back, and the students must prepare for hard and dark times ahead. The end. That was incredible. I tried to keep it tight. Was like a, a lot of plot. That was like an 800 page book in a couple paragraphs. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty impressed there. So you said this is your favorite book. So let's do, do you want to start with uh, talking about why you love this particular book in the Harry Potter series and also just in general so much? I mean, the other books are great because that's when they get dark and that's when everything's happening, but this is kind of that like in between book. Um, the, this is kind of the book where it doesn't, it's, it's not quite a children's book anymore. Um, they are always considered children's book, but I mean, just the stuff that happens in this book, it, 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 it switches so much. And I also think it just opens up the world so much more. We get, you know, wizards from different countries. We get to see Quidditch outside of Hogwarts and we get to see, you know, it's just, there's so much that happens in this book and it sets the tone for the rest of the series. It's. This really is the transitional text, right? For right. Going from yeah. kids books where, yeah, there's the big bad, but every like he's in Hogwarts, Dumbledore's there, everything's you kind of always trust things will be taken care of. Right. And this is the book that says, no. <laughs> right. Um, the, uh, students are in peril, Voldemort will kill, and they won't, you know, the people he kills won't come back. I mean, so far, it, you know, it, it, Voldemort's been something in the past. It's not something that. I mean, obviously it was bad, but they hadn't really experienced yet. I mean, even Harry, his parents were killed, but he was, you know, a baby. He doesn't remember it. He just knows that it happened. And to see this kind of stuff actually happen in front of his face is more like, you know, oh, wow. Like, we've beat this before, but this is, this is, this is not a win. Like, the, he, this this book does not end in a win. Right, exactly. Um, and certainly from here on out, the books are darker from beginning to end. Like this one still starts kind of light and right. like the whole Triwizard Tournament feels like a great adventure. Um, but that end um, in, the, in the graveyard when Cedric is killed, it, it changes the entire tone of the series. Um, yeah, it absolutely. Is just, just Harry, Hermione, and Ron, like they're, they're aging, they're maturing. This is like the maturation of the tone of the series. It's funny. It's not in the book, but in the movie version of of uh, Goblet of Fire, at the end, Hermione's like, "Everything's going to change now, right?" And Harry just like doesn't even like, yeah. You know, he's like, "Well, yeah, like of course it is." And it's that's like the <laughs> two lines that perfectly sums up exactly what this book is. Like everything changes from from this moment on. Um, I really do like this um, book a lot. It is one of my favorites in the Harry Potter series, but I do have two nits to pick that have always kind of bugged me. Sure. One, actually, someone else asked me about, and I'm wondering if you have a solution, and I've heard some explanations, but nothing that has fully satisfied me. And the other one, I've never heard anything that satisfies me very much. But the first one is, why does Mad-Eye, who is really Barty Crouch Jr., spend an entire class period teaching Harry how to throw off the Imperius Curse? And that, like... I. I still really don't have a theory for that. I've read this book a million times okay. and I've ran through theories on like all kinds of other stuff, but this one like does <laughs> not make sense to me at all. Like you were literally yeah. giving mm-hmm. your enemy like the perfect like defense. Like you were literally like why I, I never understood that. Okay. And I've heard people say, well, he was just trying to act like Mad I would have acted, but I think he could have just taught the whole class 
And when Harry had his first run through, he would have said, great job, Harry. Now we're going and move on to other students. But he stops the class to focus on Harry and teach him how to throw it off. Yeah, like it's not like it's just a, okay, you know, everybody else did it. It's Harry's turn. Like he's really focused on it. I don't know. Part of me thinks maybe he was like impressed by it. Like, you know, even if, you know, he's not really supposed to like Harry Potter, but it's almost like, well, you know. You don't want to think that just some like dumb kid be, you know, the the dark lord that you are completely obedient to, you know, and it's almost like a okay, all right, like I see it. I see I see this kid here, you know. He's he's impressive. I can see it now, you know. <laughs> like that's the only thing of guys okay. that maybe he was slightly impressed by Harry, you know. Well, and Barty Crouch Jr. knows the Imperius curse very well. He's oh, yeah. been living under it. Oh yeah. <laughs> Nonstop. And then I mean, maybe that's it too, maybe like it off Maybe, I mean, like, is that even could be it too? Whoa. Like he's he's yeah. even though that's like his you know technically his enemy, it's like he doesn't want anybody to like have to be put under that kind of control. It could be just like a subconscious like nobody should have to um, live under that or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I mean that doesn't ruin the book for me. It's just something that always kind of stood out, and I've never quite felt has been resolved. And, Especially you know, in in like, the duel later on in the grave. Yard, like you know, um, Voldemort uses it to tell. What does he say? He says he tells um, Voldemort to, to, make him to bow, right? To bow, yes. And then he makes him bow. Um, and he said, and, but Harry's like, no, I won't bow. I won't bow. And it's like, you know, your follower taught him to do that, right? <laughs> like, yeah, and that's like the first crack where, like, he's invited the theaters to come and see how pow- how much power he has over Harry ne- right. right now. First thing he does is like, well, you're going to bow to me. And Harry says, no, and he does the Imperius curse and Harry doesn't bow. And it's kind of like, mm, this isn't going according to plan. <laughs> right. Like it's, it's already like, um, you're not really dist- like demonstrating that much like, you know, power over him right now. Cause he won't even like submit yeah. to your Imperius curse. So yeah, it's very, definitely a weird, a weird plot thing that, yeah, I've, n- I've never really had a theory on it, but that's interesting. Okay. And then the other one is that, and I'm saying this as someone who's read, I am sure at this point, thousands of comic books. I've read a lot of villains plans. This is one of the most insanely Rube Goldberg <laughs> complex villains plans that I have ever encountered. Um, like not Voldemort wanting Harry's blood, just like I need Harry's blood. So I'm going to magically uh, trick the Goblet of Fire. So Harry becomes a champion and coach him through three tasks where he could die in any one of these tasks. So that he touches a port key takes him like why doesn't from day one mad i moody say well, potter hand me that wand or that quill which is secretly a port key and harry gets port keyed out to the graveyard. i mean even like even like simpler than that like i mean instead of i don't know impersonating mad i moody he could have like imp- you know personated the uh madame pomfrey the nurse at the school how many times is harry in yeah. the in the in the hospital at that school like i'm sure getting harry potter's blood is actually not that difficult to get like kid is always getting he is always getting beat up like i just feel like that's not something that would be like a hard thing to get like just hang around after a quidditch match i'm sure he'll be hurt a little bit (laughs) yeah he's bleeding after every quidditch match right and then like the whole goal really is to get him to touch a port key like if you say that's their end goal okay but then why do the whole tri-wizard tournament which obviously that's so there's a plot in the book but right, I just right, like the whole book would basically not exist for narrative that. reason for why that is the plan they put together to get Harry to touch a port key. And I've heard some people say, well, only Dumbledore can make port keys in, uh, you know, in Hogwarts, and maybe the Triwizard Cup was a port key that's supposed to bring him back to where the crowd was. But and, and so he's really altering an existing port key, but that still seems a bit strange. That still seems to me. a bit strange, though. And, yeah, because then and, anybody could like alternate like a port key then why bother having Dumbledore be the only one to do it I guess like yeah. if, if you and, could and just simply like case, change the destination at, I was gonna say why not just have something at Hogsmeade then first Hogsmeade, Hogsmeade trip hey can you grab those cockroach clusters for me and right. port key and he's gone. <laughs> it's just it's very much like the example of just like way over the top like I don't feel like you need to do all of that that's like really yeah. that's really intense like you spent months coming up with this I feel like and I don't. I don't think it needed to be that much. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's definitely. Right. It's definitely like at the end when you're when when Barty Crouch Jr. is under <sighs> the um, true serum and he's telling all and like literally every step and all the connections like with you know we didn't talk about her in the summary but like uh, Bertha and just like uh, all Bert- the stuff that comes together and it's like 
that's a lot of stuff that you guys had to do to like you just got his blood you know you didn't even <laughs> succeed in killing the kid like <laughs> and he dragged that out too I love like, yes but i love like the whole tribes of the tournament like it is oh, yeah. a great set piece yeah um i love everything about it it's just the villain's plan just seems needlessly complex and i'm like a few episodes ago we did wait until dark which has multiple costume changes from the villains so they can trick a blind woman <laughs> in this like insane um you know it, it's similar like like okay guys you're going a little you're going overboard it reminds me this. of uh, sure, surely similar ways it reminds me of the end of um huck finn where tom sawyer become comes up with like this crazy plan to like sneak Jim back into town or something like that like this insane plan and it's like okay Tom let's do this and it turns out that Jim's been freed the whole time and it's like <laughs> what what are we doing like we're dressing this guy up and like what is and that's exactly what this is it's just all like for show it's all like pomp and circumstance here just like we gotta make this a big deal like it's gonna be when when they hear that I came back it was because I did all this really cool stuff <laughs> but with that having been said um, I w- I do want to talk about like why tournaments always make great plot points for books. <laughs> they really do. Uh, so so like we just gotta have to accept that. Okay, the the villains went a little overboard, but now we're done with that. Let's talk about why tournaments always seem to work. I mean, it's just so fun. Like it's so like you just don't know what to expect, and it's just. And like I said, like, it, it also opens up, you know, with bringing in competitors from different, like, countries. Like, it just, it mm-hmm. opens up the story so much. And, like, it's a good way to teach new stuff, too. Um, teach new spells that they may need later on or teach pop points or, you know, that they may, like, need to later on without just doing, like, a big info dump. You know, like, this is a spell that they're learning. It's mm-hmm. like, well, they learned that spell because Harry's going to use it in the first task, you know. Um, I really like that. Yeah. And and they come with instant stakes and motivations that everyone understands. Yeah, like you, you don't need to lay out why someone wants to win the tournament. You don't, and and in this case, it also gives like a really good rhythmic structure to all the acts of the book. Yeah, <laughs> we've got. Three oh, absolutely. Tasks. We have <laughs> to know, get to the first so... task. We have to get to the Ubal. We have to get to the second task. Like it really breaks the year apart because usually it's it's you know Quidditch or it's you know exams or there's something that like is keeping, you know, pace of like the school year. And this one, it's definitely the tournament. And I remember at some point, um, Rowling said she almost um, regretted introducing Quidditch because she got tired of having to think of new ways to oh, play the game, <laughs> to, to play the game, to like to, to, and for Harry to win. Oh, so she must've been relieved. She's like, Oh, I'm going to cancel Quidditch this year. That's delightful. Right? <laughs> it worked out in the, the fifth book too, because Harry doesn't play for most of the year. So mm-hmm. she's like, and then, uh, seventh year obviously obviously right she's like i just can't come up with different ways for him to like catch the snitch like i'm I'm nothing (laughs) yeah it must have been nice yeah i mean it just it breaks up them i mean not not that like going to hogwarts is monotonous or anything like that but it's like they go they play quidditch they do their classes you know like obviously hijinks happen it's a school with a bunch of kids learning magic but like this gives something like different happening to the school than just what we've seen before Right, and similar to the other ones, there's stuff going on with Voldemort in the background, yeah. and and that's that's building. But in this case, there's also you know your, your front loaded plot is is different than the previous year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my favorite parts in this, and it's one of my favorite parts in the entire Harry Potter series, is the Yule Ball sequence. There's just something so delightful. It's so about- it's it's. It's funny because, I mean, granted, though, even though it's, you know, fantasy and it's magic and that's all this stuff, you know, obviously there's still, you know, kids and stuff. But this, like, the Yule Ball, like, really brings it to, like, it makes it, like, human, you know? It's, it's the yes. Yule Ball is so every middle school dance I've ever been to, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I was laughing. I was like, this feels like I'm th- I've been there. I know exactly how all these kids feel right now. Like, it's, it was so great. Yes. Um, and it, um... It's not just like humanizing Harry because like we spend so much time with Harry, right? That, you know, we 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 know all of his flaws by this point. We're we're well aware of his foibles, um, but like even like Victor Crumb is nervous about things. Right. Like it's just everyone and Victor Crumb at this point is not only the Durmstrang's champion, but like also the hero of the World Cup, right? One of the greatest Quidditch in the entire world, not like in school level Quidditch, but like all of world Quidditch. Right. He is the star. 
and he gets nervous about talking to Hermione. Which is adorable. Uh, <laughs> um, and and uh, it, it's another thing that just, it's a break from, uh, you know, the vastness of the Harry Potter mythology. To, and it like, like you said, it kind of pulls everything in and humanizes all these characters one more time. Even within the weirdness of a villain who is trying to get blood and bone right. and flesh to revive himself. And, you know, they just fought dragons and, and things like that. It's like, oh, these, these are still, like, she can write the human emotion that makes mm-hmm. us care about these people in right. these fantastic situations. And it's, I mean, it's just great too because it's, it's, kind of like the seed of like starting like all the different relationships that we're going to get in the next like three books and you know who's dating who and that kind of stuff and she does it in such a like real like like such a realistic way i mean like ron just being like oh yeah I guess you are a girl. Like, really? That's a total teenage boy thing to say. Like, you know, yes. like just the way they and act. Hermione's well spotted when she says well spotted. She's like, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> like Someone you... says something obvious now. I say well spotted. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's just so funny. I'm like, I, I see stuff all the time that, you know, you know, people give Ron like a bat, like, you know, you know, a bunch of like crap for being like, you know me he didn't you know invite Hermione to the Yule Ball and he didn't you know see that she was there I'm like he's like a 14 year old boy man like that was so realistic and so like perfect like I I love everything about the Yule Ball is just so funny Harry you know asking Cho and you know by all intents and purposes she would probably say yes I mean he's a Hogwarts champion and past that he's Harry Potter but she picked like the other famous kid in school. Like flirted a little. Yeah. Oh yeah. They flirt. I mean, they've been flirting since the third book. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's that the Yule ball is just, it's so fun. And and, like the, the fact that that's like, there's a famous wizarding band playing, like, it's just, (laughs) it's so, it's just so funny. Like everything about the Yule ball is just great. And I think it says something in the book that has the Triwizard Tournament and the Return of Voldemort, that even after my first read, and I don't know how many times I've read and or listened to the audiobook of this at this point, that's still something that I like look forward to coming. Yeah. And that stands out to me as one of the best parts. Oh of yeah, the book. absolutely. And I think it's it's what you said. It's like it's just fun to see these characters all as um nervous adolescents that aren't like they they don't know what to do next. And Harry's more comfortable. I love the line where it says, um if you had asked him if he would rather ask a girl to the Yule Ball or face a dragon, he would have said, mm. ask a girl to the Yule Ball. But now that he's faced the dragon, he would much rather do that He'd again. He'd much rather do the dragon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that line is uh, – yeah, I was just thinking of that line. That line is so funny. Just And they said it's just so realistic. I mean, Neville just being like, well, I don't know who else I'm going to take, so I guess I'll take my friend's little sister. Like, I mean, just everything about it is just so middle school, like, to me. It's just mm-hmm. – oh, it was great. It's just so funny. And and even like the little throwaway line, line where like Ron's like, why do the girls always travel in packs? Which oh, it's 100% very real true. <laughs> remembering high school, junior high, like, you know, you can't have a one-on-one conversation because they're always around their friends. Uh-huh. That's, and it's so, it's absolutely true. Like it's 100% true. Yeah. Everything about the Yule Ball is just, it's, and it even like, I mean, not that we don't really get much of that before, but I mean, even like, you know, the adult characters you get to see kind of, you know letting loose too you get to see you know um Hagrid I mean McGonagall Dumbledore they're all there just having a great time it's 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 a very like human moment for in the middle of this like huge tournament that's like just the craziest thing that could exist <laughs> and uh, I mean we're talking about the book not the film adaptations but I think the film adaptation really did the Yule, Yule Ball pretty well yeah I'm not a, um, admittedly, I'm not a huge fan of this movie only because this is my favorite of the books, but I do love mm-hmm. the Yule Ball. I think they did a really good job with that, like, scene, and I would say that's probably my favorite, like, in the movie. They just, again, they got everything about a school dance, like, perfect, and they just added that, like, wizard, like, touch to it. Yeah. Um, are th- is there anything else that particularly stands out to you from this book? Honestly, when when I first read it, like I said, I read it when I was, you know, when it first came out and I was 12. And at the time I was very much like I read, you know, like contemporary like novels all the time. And Harry Potter was kind of my first introduction to fantasy. I always thought fantasy before was like too difficult for me to read. Um, so it, everything Harry Potter did was like just the most amazing thing. And I remember the chapter that you get the info dump from, you know, Barty Crouch Jr. When just everything comes out like... Mm-hmm. Now as an adult, I recognize that like that is a big info dump, but I still think it's just such yes. a great chapter because it's like 
every little detail. I mean, even details that come from like other books just kind of like come together in that chapter. And it's like, it's so impressive to me, that chapter, just like how it's like, oh my God, I totally forgot about that like tiny little part where they mentioned this and that was important to, you know, this entire plot point. Like it's just, it's it's the first time you really get um, kind of like the little, how all the little subplots she does um, comes mm-hmm. together at once because she continues to do that for the rest of the series. And I just thought that was like the most right. impressive thing. It really is a, a fantastic feat of storytelling. Um, I think like uh, another pop culture touchstone for that is kind of like in um, uh, The Sixth Sense. Right. When, spoiler, you find out <laughs> that certain characters have been dead the entire time. Right. And you like rethink everything that you've seen before. Right. And it all makes sense within the narrative universe that they've built. It all it, like all the boxes check, and it, you immediately want to go like go revisit it and, with the new knowledge that you have, right? Because um, it, it's all going to work again, but you're just going to have layers of knowledge that are coming, right? And I remember feeling like all like it's simultaneously like the gears churning or the the puzzle pieces locking in when you get to that chapter. And you're like, oh, that and that and that, right? And it all fits so perfectly um, that. Even if I do have that to pick that maybe didn't need to have to be that complex and crazy for it to work right. that she did introduce everything in the right way. And the way that she introduces things, you kind of feel um, in a lot of the cases that she's, she's introduced them and resolved them for why they were there. And then you move on and you kind of forget about it. Exactly. You, yeah. Later on, you're like, Oh, that was something else bigger. Um, and, but, mean, it, but at the same time, she does also keep some of them that are burning bright through the entire book. So like the birth of Jorkins, it's like, what is going on with birth of Jorkins? Why do we keep right, coming back to her? Right. Um, so that you have that kind of sense of menace is still present and the sense of mystery is still present in the entire book. But a lot of the, the clues you forget our clues until you get that info dump. Right. And it's, I mean, even like, I mean like, or, you know, all the opposite and winky, she's constantly there throughout the book, but you're kind of like, I don't totally understand why she's there. You know, like she's, it seems like she's wrapped up and then they find her, you know, working for Hogwarts. And then you think she's wrapped up and then you get to see her again. You're kind of like, okay, now I'm, why is she still here? And then, you know, once you get that info dump, you're like, oh, okay. Like now all of her appearances make so much more sense. But you're, I mean, even as you're kind of like, why is she still here? You get the, uh, Hermione's um her new social justice you know, oh yeah absolutely. that she builds and you can kind of kind of feel like right. okay she's there for Hermione and this is Hermione's kind of awakening to an injustice right that she's gonna perceive and she's she's gonna you know have a, a different kind of social morality than she's ever had before um and, and so you can kind of think that that is why she's there and then you find out oh she was babysitting the big bad for this book that I didn't even realize was the big bad for right. this book I really do love that um, that plot point of Hermione, I, it, you know, her creating uh, Spew and getting like so like just really into it, really passionate about it. Because I think prior to that, Hermione's very like everything about the wizarding world is just fantastic and amazing. And she just wants to learn it all. And like she's just so happy to be there. And just and, and I think to like discover that like not everything is, you know you know, kind of like sunshine and rainbows and that, you know, even like so-called like good wizards still you know, own house elves or whatever. Like, I think it's kind of a interesting wake up call for her. Almost like a things are not quite perfect here. Well, and I think it fits the, again, the, like the maturation that we're seeing right. for again, like the kind of storytelling is going to be present. Like she's going to be addressing even more head on um, social justice issues. Right. Um, but also like you're saying, she's realizing that it's not just black and white in right. the world which like that's the right age for this to be happening yeah right you know there's a reason it's happening when they're in you know they're, they're heading um more into adulthood than, than yeah. childhood at this point and so it is the you know the age of realizing your parents aren't perfect in this case she's realizing dumbledore and hogwarts aren't perfect right um uh, you know and and realizing that you know these these institutions that you just kind of took for granted growing up that maybe have flaws that you never saw because you were growing up like it's it, right it's not a fault of yours that you didn't see those before and her eyes are opening to that in a way um that feels earned and is at, at the right part of the the harry potter um saga you know she's at the right age to be having that experience and it's great because it, it really leads but like those characters into kind of what they're going to experience in the next book. Cause the next book, it's like, everybody's letting them down and just everything, you know, it's, it's all full angst and in all of that in the next book. And I think she really starts that in this book kind of. 
Yeah. Um, and, and I think it can also go back to like some of our like it's, it's all of these things, the hormones, the maturation point they're at, all these are leading them to in some ways, like a disillusionment with yeah. what they're going to see in the world around them. Absolutely. Oh, the next book is wait. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> my, my, uh, I have a nine year old daughter and she gets angrier about the ministry of magic in book five than basically anything else in Harry Potter. Like she just I mean, hates, the, the like, book makes you just so to like see truth. <laughs> I remember, I mean, God, when that book came out, I'm trying to think of how old I was when that book came out. I don't remember, but I just remember being like, oh, so frustrated. Like, I, I, I mean, I was probably at an age that was pretty like angsty with them. So it was just in a very angsty right. time for me. <laughs> It, uh, yeah book five is kind of the platonic ideal of teenage angst right. like it's just all there in its purest form yeah <laughs> um, like that book is just and, ha- and, harry uh, potter and the year of angst yes <laughs> um but i like that this book is still like as that transitionary like we get that at the end like everything from yeah uh the final event on you're starting to feel all that angst like oh things yeah things are gonna be great Harry's definitely moodier. Uh, like everything, everyone's down because Cedric died. Obviously, like they should be down. They've earned that down feeling. But the book ends right. on kind of a downer. And then the next book, it's not like heroic triumph. Is like mm, everything is. <laughs> uh, I mean, really it bad, ends but... with with Cornelius Fudge being like, "I don't believe you. Like this is not mm-hmm. happening. Like it, it fully is like everything has happened. He already feels horrible. And then to have you know someone be like, "That's not true. Like that's absolutely not true." Like, right after he's just, like, experienced it. Like, it's so perfect leading into how he's going to feel in the next book. Well, and also, like, for him, it's not just the fact that you think I'm a liar. It's that the thing you think I'm lying about is going to threaten the entire world. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Like, like this is not just, like, my feelings, but... (laughs) Yeah. The stakes that are present for you to be disbelieving and not, as Dumbledore says, you should be moving immediately, to not be doing that... It's going to have major ramifications. And yeah, I'm ticked off that you don't believe me. <laughs> and <Yeah>. um, especially <laughs> when, why would I be lying about this? And it's like, oh, because now we believe Rita Skeeter that says, you know, you're negative. Yeah, you're crazy. You know, and yeah, crazy. you're attention seeking and all of that. Yeah. Like I said, and all of that, like the stuff that Rita Skeeter does, it's, it seems sort of random throughout the book. Kind of like, okay, it's kind of but a she- product of being famous and of, you know, of all that stuff. But then when you see what that builds at the end of this book and then continuing to the next book. Like, it's just so smart. Yeah, definitely. Um, with, within the Harry Potter books, you do see each book has its own, um, you know, it, it's a, its own plot, right? It's own hero cycle, but there's also the hero cycle of all seven books together. When you step back and look right. at them and the rise and fall, and we're heading into the abyss for the hero cycle. Um, oh yeah. It, 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 it's oh, yeah. like for the saga as a whole, this is the descent, descent, descent phase. And book five is yeah. like, we're in the abyss. <laughs> um, phase, yeah, this is definitely the, the bad guys win moment mm-hmm. for sure. Um, are there any anything else that you want to note about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire? I mean, I don't think so. I, I, I just it's it's just such a great like middle book in this series. I just think it really takes it from children's to I mean, it's still considered children's for the rest of the series, but I think it definitely takes a more I don't know YA twist in this one, and I just that's why it's, it stays my favorite. You know, even though I've I've read the whole series so many times, like I still just always go back to this particular one yeah yeah i mean i I think they're all good and this is a a very strong entry into into the series and i remember uh getting it at that midnight party and just reading as much as i could before i'm like ah i'm gonna fall asleep and (laughs) yeah from the get-go and i think it does still hold the attention very well um she is yeah skillful right it turns out yes definitely (laughs) definitely well, uh, Sarah, you are a first-time guest for us on the Protagonist Podcast. Yes, I am. We always like to ask our first-time guests uh, a question because we talk about great characters and great stories. If you could have a dinner party with any three to five characters from fiction, uh, just to hang out and enjoy the conversation that would take place, who would you want to have around? I know. I this, it's it's hard because the first person I thought of when when I when I got this question was. Um, uh, from one of my favorite books, you know, other than Harry Potter is Fangirl, which is funny because it's about a girl who likes a fictional version of Harry Potter. And I've always thought like that would be really cool to, 
include Kath on that. But then I thought, well, Kath is kind of like a character that I've always felt really connected with, like as myself. And I'm like, do I want to have dinner with myself? Like, I feel like that would be really boring. But she's really the first one that always comes up. Um, and then uh, there's a book series um, by a YA author named Lee Bardugo. And it's called The Six of Crows Duology. And the first book is Six of Crows. Second book is Cricket Kingdom. And uh, the, well, there's technically six main characters, but like the real main character of the series is Kaz Brecker. And he's kind of um, this gang leader who kind of worked his way up from a kid to kind of become this leader. And he's really young and he's really dark and kind of, you know, uh, he's the bad guy and he's really smart, but he's also kind of not at the same time. Like he's really, um, he uses a lot of that to like hide his emotions and to hide, you know, um, kind of like what he would consider like the weak part of him. And he's just, he's such a phenomenal character and he's, he's funny and he's really, really smart. And I think that would be a really fun one to do. We actually, me and my boyfriend named our cat after that character and, uh, <laughs> maybe not the best idea. Cause she really, um, embodies him and uh <laughs> maybe it wasn't maybe it wasn't the best name to pick for a cat but it's someone it, you would want you to know. have for a dinner party but not to live with is turning out. oh yeah <laughs> it was like i want to have one dinner like to have that conversation but then after that i'd be like mm, i'm probably good from here you know like yeah but but as i said i named my cat after the character so i kind of you know got myself stuck with that anyway and then um i also i think my like the last person i think would be really fun to have a dinner party with just because of I, it would just be so fun. It would be um, one of my favorite books since a kid because it was my mom's favorite book was um, Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. And I think having a um, Scarlett O'Hara at a dinner party would just be like the perfect person because she would like, I would just let her plan it, like let her do everything. And it would just, it would be great. It would be, she would she's just, room. oh yeah. She's just one of those characters that like, I just would love to meet like in person. Yeah, I, I was thinking specifically about Harry Potter with this recently. Like, who from Harry Potter would be the most interesting? And Ooh. I realized it's probably Gilderoy Lockhart would be the best just to have one dinner with. See, and <laughs> then from Harry, okay, if it was from Harry Potter, for me, it would be Luna. Like, easily it would be Luna. Like, uh-huh. Luna would be such a great, I mean, like, I feel like that's partly why, like, Harry invites Luna to the party in book six, um, to Slughorn's party. Like, she just, she's just one of those people, like, she would always make a party great. Like, yes. She she would be the best, yeah. So from Harry Potter, easily Luna. Yeah, I just think uh, Lockhart. It would it would I'd get a lot of good stories out of having one meal with that man. <laughs> like not, oh yeah, they not, would, none of them would be true, but yeah. well, also it would be like, can you believe what he told me next? Kind of story, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. You're like I'm just I should write this down. Like this is amazing. Like I don't know what he's talking about, but this is awesome. Yes uh real quick uh sarah before uh we we do the outro i wanted to give you the chance to plug your both your blog and your books real quick yeah absolutely so i run a um it's predominantly young adult book blog but i also kind of throw a lot of other nerd stuff in there when i feel like it and um it's called what a nerd girl says you can find that at what a nerd girl org. everything's spelled right um i've been doing that for about six years now and then I also am the writer of a young adult fiction, uh, science fiction duology, um, with the first book being The Awakened and the second book being The Sanctuary. And um, right now, those um, they are technically out of print, so you can only buy them through me, which you can do through my website. But um, yeah, that's kind of the two big things that I got. Very cool. And I think at that point, we're going to wrap up this episode. Thank you again for joining us, Sarah. Of course. And thank you listeners for joining us and for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows. You can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review that really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English who designed our logo and Scott Tofty who composed our theme music. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episodes number 43, 104 and 152. When we talked about the first three books in the Harry Potter series. Uh, you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew is at Dizminute. And Sarah, what is your, uh, your Twitter feed? Uh, so pretty much any social media that you can find me on. I'll be what a nerd girl says, except for Twitter. It's a nerd girl says, cause it doesn't fit. 
So it would definitely be a nerd girl says. A nerd girl says on Twitter. Yeah. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. That Barty Crouch Jr., when he was in Azkaban, <coughs> sorry, I couldn't get through it. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry, Andrew, you're going to have to make a couple edits in there. Whenever I say his name and when he's editing, it makes him really catch where the edits have to be. Makes sense. Um, you don't You don't know what editing's <laughs> like. Oh, I know, but I try and say your name so it catches you because I know you listen to it at two x speed when you're when you're editing. <laughs> you know, you know what really catches my attention? The sounds of coughing. <laughs> the, it's yeah, a sure that, sign. That, that, that was that was a sure sign of where it needs to take place. <clears throat> yeah. All right. Um.